0: For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Father, we do thank You for this privilege that we have to look at Your Word, that it is a lamp, a light into our path and a lamp into our feet. It illuminates all of our thinking. It is the light in which we see all of the light. Father, now as we study your word and continue to understand the things that Jesus said and taught during the first advent when he walked on the earth, we pray that you would help us to understand clearly what he has said, that we might be challenged by it under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Chapter 10 One of the things that we do at this conference is it's set up the morning sessions go for four hours each and they're designed to give three, the main sessions are three mornings and designed really to teach the pastors how to do biblical study as a background to their teaching and preaching. And one of the most important issues is context. Now, I have always said a text without a, without a context is a pretext. But I learned something new this week. Now, we all know what a con is. There's always the con artist out there. And if you take the text out of the context, then all you're left with is a con. I thought that sounded pretty good. And unfortunately, that happens when you get into interpreting John chapter 10. And this is the first time I've gone through the gospel of John in as detailed a manner as we have. And the more I have studied some of the passages that we've looked at in the Good Shepherd Discourse in chapter 10, the more I realize you cannot divorce chapter 10 from chapter 9. If we don't understand that chapter 10 is the commentary on what has transpired with the blind man in John chapter 10, then you will push the analogy too far and try to extrapolate certain doctrines from the analogy that are not confirmed by clear testimony of Scripture in other passages. One of the things that we must realize is that in the teaching of Scripture, there are, there are not only passages that clearly present and explicate doctrines and principles, but there are also, especially in narrative literature and in the Gospels, you have parables and you have other uh, stories, narratives, and metaphors that are used to illustrate principles, and any parable, story, or or metaphor is going to have a series of points within it. Now, not every point, every element of a parable or story or metaphor can be applied, can be brought over into a principle. So you have to look at it and see what the key elements are, and there may be one or some that are eliminated, and some that are definitely included. Now, we have already seen that there is, there is one element here where people have utilized, or several elements here in the Good Shepherd discourse, that have been used to try to substantiate some hyper-Calvinist doctrines in relationship to uh, uncondition- what they call unconditional election, but more specifically limited atonement, that is that Christ died only for the sheep. And this is where they go with some of these passages that Jesus came to call his sheep, I know my sheep, they follow me, and is used to substantiate that. That's pushing the whole thing too far. This is a narrative story. This is, this is an illustration that Jesus is using. The same thing happens when we come down to um, verse 27 of chapter 10. Where we read, Jesus is speaking, He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. Now, from verse 27 down through verse 30, we have the very important doctrine of eternal security. Now, when it comes to understanding eternal security, there are a couple of things we need to understand as background. Background. First of all, there is one theological school that is generally referred to as Arminian theology. This is named for a, an early 17th century a Dutch theologian by the name of James Arminius. It was really systematized by one of his students, a man named Derek von Kornhurt. But it's called Arminian theology, and in Arminian theology basically teaches that uh, man has a, a will or volition that is unaffected by sin. See, we believe that man can still exercise positive volition toward God, but it is still hindered. He cannot understand the gospel. The Holy Spirit has to make it clear, all of these things. They have a completely unhindered will. Man is basically the same as Adam was when Adam was created before the fall. And there are various other aspects, such as um, that el- uh, uh, the way they treat election is its condition. Now, this is what is sometimes referred to as the prescience view of election. We do, I do not hold to a prescience view of election. A prescience view, this may think with me, listen to what I say. A prescience view says that God's back here in eternity past, and He looks down the corridors of time. This is prescience of pre-knowledge. And He sees who will trust Christ as Savior. And then, key word here, because they have faith, God then selects them. So, election... Our selection is because of faith. Now, the Bible never says that. In fact, in Ephesians two eight nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It uses the preposition in the Greek dia plus a genitive noun for faith. Now, if dia is used with an accusative, it means cause. But the cause of our salvation is not our faith in Christ. The cause of our salvation is the love of God who sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That is the cause of our salvation. We are never saved because we believe. Never once in the Scripture does it use that kind of construction. So that's what's wrong with the Arminian view. Now, there is a moderate Calvinist view that would look at it in terms of foreknowledge that God knows who would, under whatever circumstances, exercise positive volition. Then God, in His sovereignty, will make sure that that person who would exercise positive volition at the moment of gospel hearing will hear the gospel and that the circumstances necessary to bring about that that the circumstances necessary to bring about that amount of response will be present and they will respond in faith but they are saved through faith but God is still viewed as the efficient cause but he doesn't mess with our volition he doesn't tweak it The hyper-Calvinist view says that God, in essence, is the one who moves the believer to be positive, and He doesn't do that for everybody. Now, as a result of that, the Arminian view is that because you do something to be saved, you can do something to lose your salvation. Think that I always want to put an extra O in there. You can do something to lose your salvation. In both moderate and hyper Calvinism, you can do nothing to lose your salvation. You have eternal security. And the Arminian will come to John 1027 and say, and this is how they read this My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and They follow me. And they read that conditionally. They will say, if they don't follow me, or if they follow me only part way, then they really weren't my sheep. That's what they read into that text. But that's not there. To properly interpret this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, we have to understand what happened in John 9 with the blind man. When Jesus came... He was like the shepherd. In Israel, they would often pin, in Jerusalem, they would often pin several different flocks together in one pen. Each shepherd had a specific call that they would, they would voice all the time when they are out with the sheep. They would always walk among the sheep, always uttering this same word, phrase, cry, all the time. So the sheep got used to hearing his voice and what he said. And so, the way they would separate out their sheep is a shepherd would walk in through the door of the sheepfold, walk around, and he would utter this cry, something like, um, bado, 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 and they would hear it, and all his sheep would just file out behind him, and he would walk out, and none of the other sheep would follow him. Now, Jesus is making the analogy that the cry that he made as the good shepherd is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who follow Him, who exercise positive volition in God consciousness, are His sheep. Those who don't are not His sheep. And so He says, my sheep hear my voice. That's all He is saying. He's using this analogy. My sheep hear my voice. And just like the sheep in the, in the analogy follow the, um, follow the shepherd out, and we saw in that analogy earlier that the door, the e- door of egress or the door of exit, rather, the door going out, the door of egress, is the cross. And hearing His voice is hearing the gospel, and following Him is responding by faith alone in Christ alone. Following Him is not continuing in the Christian life. Following Him is not becoming a disciple Following him is nothing more in this entire analogy, is nothing more than what we see the blind man doing in John nine thirty-five and 36, or 35 to 38, when Jesus, after he heard that the Pharisees had kicked him out of the synagogue, Jesus found him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? Notice there's nothing else involved, it's just simple belief. Jesus said, you've both seen him and he is the one talking with you. And the blind man said, Lord, I believe. That's how he follows. Simply faith alone in Christ alone. So that brings us to a very crucial time to review the doctrine of eternal security. This is what Jesus emphasizes in verse 28. Those who follow me, in other words, those who believe, and I give eternal life to them. And they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. And then he goes a step further and he says, this is a Trinitarian operation. The Father is involved also. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is a Hebrew image of power. The hand represents the power of God and the believer is locked in the power of God and nothing is more powerful than the omnipotence of God so nothing can separate the believer from his position in Christ. So let's review. We started this the last time, two weeks ago. We, I missed last Sunday being out of town and we'll come back now and let's review it with the, starting with the definition. Point number one. Definition, Doctrine of Eternal Security. Eternal security is defined as the work of God which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. Notice that it is God who saves us. It is God who keeps us. It is God who preserves us. None of it is due to anything on our part. There is nothing we can do to abrogate or nullify salvation. Since we do nothing to earn or deserve the free gift of salvation, we don't do anything that can cause us to lose the gift of salvation. God does not give like man gives. God does not give with strings attached. He does not put conditions with it. So eternal security is an unbreakable relationship with the integrity of God, His perfect righteousness and absolute justice and immeasurable love. It's unbreakable because God's the one who cemented the relationship together and God is the only one who could do anything to break it and He won't because that would violate His own character. So, the definition is the work of God which guarantees God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. Point number two. God the Father's purposes in salvation cannot be overridden by any act of human volition. No act of human volition can override God's purposes and saving us. This is seen in Romans eight, twenty-nine and 30. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. See, that term predestination often confuses a lot of people. It has to do with a destiny that God has determined from eternity past That the ultimate destiny for every believer is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So he determines that from eternity past. That's the pre-part. The destiny indicates that every believer has a destiny to be conformed to the image of Christ. That he, that is Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. In whom he predestined. Look at this. These he also called. So God knows in his omniscience all the knowable. God knows every contingency, every possibility, and every permutation of every option on into infinity. He perceives all of this simultaneously, instantly, and eternally. God never increases or decreases in knowledge. He simultaneously knows all the knowable. Now, foreknowledge is a subcategory of his omniscience. So we start off with omniscience. We'll draw it like this. This relates to every possible contingency. It's beyond anything we can imagine or comprehend. As a subcategory of this, which includes all the potential, all the options, God knows what actually will transpire in history. This relates to God's foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, therefore, is a subcategory of omniscience. In foreknowledge, God distinguishes between the actual and the possible. And God, in His foreknowledge, knows which of His creatures will be positive at God-consciousness and which of His creatures will be positive at gospel-hearing. Because of his integrity, God will, for every person who becomes positive at God consciousness, God will make sure the gospel gets to them in some way, shape, or form so that they will have a clear presentation of the gospel. And though historically we do not know that the gospel made it to a lot of different cultures, every now and then we do discover that in spite of all of our previous historical knowledge, the gospel made it someplace like down into Sri Lanka or into some remote area of China by the end of the first century or early second ch- century. Uh, the gospel and the Old Testament, people say, well, what about the Old Testament? One of the interesting things when you read about the Old Testament and you do a study archaeologically of the land of Israel, you realize that of all the major civilizations in, in the world, when you place a map in front of you, all the trade routes in the world crossed in the middle of Israel, right outside the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. All the trade routes that went from Europe to Asia to Africa, everything crossed right in the middle of the land God gave to Israel. So you continuously had traders and merchants coming It's not like the church where we're told to go out into the world, but in the Old Testament, the world literally came to Israel where Gentiles heard the gospel and then it would be taken back throughout the world. We know of of the fact that Jonah, the whole story of Jonah is about the fact that God postponed judgment on Assyria because when Jonah came and proclaimed that They just had a short time before God would judge and destroy the Assyrian Empire. They changed their mind and they responded to the gospel and God postponed judgment on Assyria for 200 years. So there's many examples in the Old Testament of how Gentiles responded to the gospel as it was presented in the Old Testament. So at God consciousness, God is bound by His own integrity to make sure the gospel is clear. And then positive at God consciousness... Are at gospel hearing. God knows that uh, exactly what would be involved to put the person in a situation in terms of clarity of the gospel presentation, uh, circumstances that might put pressure on the person, whatever it might be. And He also knows that no matter what happens, and we see this, we've seen this in John, we've seen it right here in this in this situation, that they have seen more evidence of who Jesus Christ is. They have seen the miracles. They have seen the power. They have seen all of this, and yet they reject it. And that tells us that the issue is volition. It is not clarity of the gospel presentation. It's not enough evidence. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not they need more more convincing. It is that ultimately, if they are not positive in God consciousness, they will not be positive at gospel hearing, and God knows just exactly what it takes to bring that person to a situation where he will exercise positive volition. If there's any way that that person will do that, because God does not desire for any to be lost, God will do that for every person who's positive who would respond, because in his foreknowledge, he knows that they actually would, and so he makes certain that they do. And so he knows exactly who this group is. It is a certain number. X. And that's what we see in Romans eight twenty nine, that this number X in God's foreknowledge he predestined them that all those who would respond, all X are predestined. These he also calls. Calling is a work of God the Holy Spirit upon these particular individuals that God knows would respond, and it is when God the Holy Spirit as part of as a subcategory of common grace makes the gospel clear. He doesn't do this to everyone. There's not one person who rejects the gospel that is called in this sense. Why? Because it says, those whom he called, these he justified. No more, no less. Because of his foreknowledge, because God's foreknowledge and awareness of who will and who will not respond, the Holy Spirit is only going to make the gospel clear to those who will respond positively in faith. He's not inefficient. He doesn't make it clear in this sense to those who aren't saved. And that's clear from this passage. It's the same group. X are predestined. X are called. No more, no less. It's not X minus one or X plus one. It's the same group that's that's predestined is the same group that is called. And those who are called, these are also justified. So it's the same group. Called justified foreknown and then it says uh, whom he justifies these he also glorified these no more no less it's the same group he doesn't lose any in the process from foreknowledge in eternity past to calling in time justification in time glorification in eternity future god doesn't lose anyone God doesn't lose anyone, and God never abrogates, violates, nullifies individual volition in the process. So, Romans 8, and 30 set forth the entire divine plan for human history, and there we learn that God will not lose anyone who is justified. Point number three, God the Father's omnipotence is more powerful than any human attempt to negate Salvation. God the Father's omnipotence is more powerful than any human attempt to negate salvation. God is the one who saves. Faith is merely the means by which we appropriate the work of Christ on the cross into our life. Jude one twenty four says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy it is God the father who keeps us John 10 28 and 29 is our current passage it is very clear that God is going to keep us safe now we come to point number four God is omniscient so we have an argument from the omnipotence of God uh, an argument from the sovereignty of God point two An argument from the omnipotence of God, point three. An argument from the omniscience of God, point four. And then we'll summarize this uh, in terms of his omniscience. He knows all the knowable. He knows all the knowable simultaneously and has always known all the knowable. This means that billions and billions of eons ago, God knew every single sin that we would ever commit. There's nothing we can do that will surprise God. So he was able in his omniscience to devise a plan that was broad enough, complex enough, and deep enough to include the solution for every single sin. Because he knew every sin that would be committed, he was able to provide a solution for every single sin that would be committed. So nothing we will ever do will ever surprise God. Nothing we will ever do will be something that wasn't accounted for in the plan of God. God is omnipotent. As such, He has the ability to do whatever is necessary to bring His plan to completion. So when we combine God's omniscience with His omnipotence, we see that because God knew all the facts, He was able to devise a plan vast enough and large enough and detailed enough to include the solution to every sin. So no sin surprises God, no sin is left undealt with, and no sin is too great for the plan of God. And to say or think that we can do something that jeopardizes our salvation is one of the greatest acts of blasphemy that can ever be uh, committed. Point number five. No one, angelic or human, can bring a charge or condemn those who are saved. No one, angelic or human, can bring a charge against or condemn those who are saved. Since Christ's death covers all their sin, and we possess the imputed righteousness of Christ imputed on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone nothing can be charged against a child of god if any sin could undo a believer's salvation think about this if any believer if any sin could undo a believer's salvation then either a Christ's death did not pay for that sin or b his payment was not enough and it had to be Added to by our obedience. Either he didn't pay for it at all, or his payment was incomplete, and it needs our continued obedience in order to complete it. Both of those statements accuse the death of Christ as being inadequate or insufficient for our salvation and are false. A. The idea that Christ's death did not pay for that sin impugns the sufficiency of Christ and charges God's plan with inadequacy. And B, places man's salvation ultimately upon our own work and merit. Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The point is, is that God's grace is greater than us, it's greater than our sins, it's greater than our thoughts, it's greater than our works, and it's nothing more than the height of human arrogance to think that something we can do can violate or nullify the plan of God. Point number six. To think that you can help out God is nothing more than arrogance. God doesn't need our help. God doesn't want our help. In fact, Scripture says that whenever we try to add to God's plan, it nullifies the grace of God and cancels His plan. The problem is that many Christians are so concerned that somehow some Christian is going to get away with something, get away with some sin, that they feel like they have to threaten people with the loss of their salvation to get them to obey God. And that's nothing more than legalistic, Uh, manipulation point number seven when you understand the dynamics and complexities of what God must do to save even one unbeliever you realize how complex the whole process is and how impossible it is to reverse it you see at salvation something metaphysical or ontological takes place now those are some big words Metaphysics comes from two Greek words meta beyond physics, the natural. It has to do with that which is beyond the natural realm of of, of, the, of physics. And ontological is from a couple of Greek words, ontos, the present active participle of a me to be or existence, Lagos, the study of existence. So they both have to their synonyms, they refer to something that is beyond the physical. They relate to that metaphysics is that branch of, of psychology, or excuse me, of philosophy that deals with ultimate realities. And what we learn in the realm of metaphysics or ontology is has to do with our soul, that there is a radical transformation that takes place in our immaterial being at the moment of salvation that is so vast and so complex. And God has to do so many different things to even think that it's reversible is, is impossible. So much has to take place. In Armenian theology, they think that salvation is just this simple thing. Well, now you're given eternal life. But when we realize the 39 different irrevocable things that God gives us at salvation, we're given a priesthood, an ambassadorship, we're identified with Christ in His death, burial and resurrection the power of sin the sin nature is broken we are freed from the power of sin we are given eternal life we are blessed with all the blessings in the heavenlies all of these things are done instantly at that moment of salvation a human spirit is created and imparted to us and god the father imputes to that human spirit eternal life and this is all ours and much much more and to say we lose our salvation is to say that that, that human spirit is taken away. The eternal life is taken away. All those assets are removed. The Holy Spirit is taken out. Our body is converted back from a temple to Christ, back into just a, a pagan temple. And all of this would be involved. And then to say, well, you can get saved again, means you, it, it, it's absurd. It is absolutely absurd because people do not comprehend The vastness of God's plan of salvation and all that He does for us in our salvation. The imputation, justification, reconciliation, spiritual life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, all is involved in our salvation and it's irreversible. Point number eight. Jesus Christ continually prays for us to be kept in salvation. And his prayers are answered. So since his, his prayers fulfill all the conditions that God sets forth for prayer, then God always answers his prayers, and therefore we will be kept in salvation. John 17, Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves, that is believers, the disciples specifically, are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name. The name which thou hast given me, and thy name as we have seen refers to the essence of God. So he basically was praying, keep them because of who and what you are, because of your essence, because of your attributes. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name which thou hast given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that is Judas Iscariot, he was never saved. He was not a believer. We know this because he was indwelt by Satan personally. And this confirms that. The only one who Jesus lost, and He didn't lose Him like a believer losing salvation, He never had it. He, never, he is the one who perished. Jesus doesn't say, I lost Him. He said, I was keeping them, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Why did Jesus call an unbeliever to be a disciple in order to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies that one who was close to Him would betray Him and to fulfill all the prophecies related to that betrayal? John 17, 13, "...but now I come to thee in these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them." because they are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So Jesus prays that we are kept day in and day out, and the Father answers his prayer. Point number nine, Christ is the head of the body. One of the 39 irrevocable things that happens at salvation is we are placed in the body of Christ. Christ cannot be severed. From a member of the body, once it has been joined to the body, there are no spiritual amputations. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 13 and 21. Point number 10. The character of God means that God keeps his promises. Because God is immutable, eternal, infinite, and perfect righteousness, He cannot cancel the gift once it is given, no matter how disobedient, rebellious, or obnoxious the believer's conduct might be. Once we are in the family of God, God cannot disown us. 2 Timothy two eleven to 13 as we have studied in the first hour, faithful is the word if we died with Him, and we have, that's, Positional, retroactive positional truth, we shall live with Him. If we endure, we shall rule with Him. That is, if we endure as we grow as believers, we shall rule with Him in terms of rewards in the Millennial Kingdom. If we deny Him, that is, if we are failures in the spiritual life, He will deny us rewards and escrow blessings. If we are unfaithful to Him, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny himself. That should have been point 10. This is 11. The Holy Spirit seals us at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit seals us at the moment of salvation which is our guarantee for protection and salvation. There is a seal placed on us and we are identified as owned by Christ. Down in Texas we brand cattle. That's what that's analogous to. Once you own a uh, cattle, you put your brand on them it 's your mark of ownership, and we all bear in our bodies the brand of the lord jesus Christ second corinthians one twenty two ephesians one thirteen and four thirty 2 Timothy two nineteen ephesians one thirteen says in whom, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom when you believed, you were also sealed, it takes place at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. Ephesians 4.30 says, Stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed to the day of redemption. And then we come to uh, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. There is a verbal structure there that is very important in the Greek. You have a phrase you have been saved in the greek it is the present active indicative of the verb me meaning to be you literally it might be translated are being saved but the participle there it's a what's called a periphrastic participle combination of a finite verb to be verb plus a, a, a helping participle have been from sozo the perfect active participle, when you combine them together, the tense of the main verb becomes that of the participle. And the emphasis is on a past action, that's the sense of a perfect tense, the, the present results of a past action. So it should be, and is accurately translated, you have been saved in the past with continuing results. So that phrase emphasizes the present reality of completed past action. And then Romans 8:38 and 39 gives us a clear, um, precise presentation of our position in Christ. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us. "...from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." That phrase, in Christ Jesus, in Christo, speaks of our permanent identification with Christ at the moment of our salvation. This is an identification that cannot be reversed. So, because we are identified with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection, all of our sin, past, present, and future, is taken care of, even if we decide to turn our back on Him for the remainder of of our life because of our position in Christ we share Christ's divine righteousness 2 Corinthians 5:21 we're accepted in Christ forever Ephesians 1:6 we share the destiny of Christ Ephesians 1:5 we share the heirship of God Romans 8:17 which means this is an eternal possession our inheritance we share the election of Christ Romans 8 28 and 29, and we are sanctified in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 30. So we are sanctified in Christ, and then finally, point 14, retroactive positional truth, which we studied in the first hour, means that at the moment of salvation, through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, known as baptism which means that we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Everything we are as an unregenerate person is crucified with Christ. Therefore, what is broken is the power of the sin nature. It is not removed. And because we are identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, every sin is dealt with. And that's not reversible. We can't lose it. Once it's dead, it's dead. Once the sin nature's power is broken, it's broken. Once it's identified with Christ on the cross, it's identified with Christ on the cross. And we can never lose that salvation. That is why Jesus can say in verses 28 and 29, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. It gives us eternal Security. We never have to be afraid. We never have to look over our shoulders, so to speak, or feel guilty about sin because it's all dealt with. All we have to do is grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Utilize 1 John 1.9 when necessary in order to recover from sin and to keep moving forward. And we never have to be afraid that we will lose our position in the family of God. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he concludes by saying, I and the Father are one. A profound statement of his unity with God the Father. But in context, what he is saying is because God's plan is to bring us to salvation. And my plan is to bring us to salvation. There is a double protection here for the believer, that you cannot be taken away from either of us. And therefore, it's, it's like double strengthening the argument, and the believer can never lose salvation. And of course, we get the normal reaction from the Pharisees in verse 31, and they began to stone him. Now, Jesus is going to give a very sophisticated answer to that, which we don't have time to look at, this morning, so we will stop here at the end of verse 30 and come back and resume our study in verse 31 next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity and privilege to look at your word and to understand the vast dynamics of our salvation. Father, we thank you that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone because Jesus Christ did everything necessary for our salvation. We pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, who has never settled the issue with you, that right now in the privacy of their soul with their heads bowed and eyes closed, they would recognize that they are in need of eternal salvation and that they would express their faith and trust in Christ alone to you in silent prayer. All that is necessary is for us to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. We don't have to reform our lives. We don't have to join a church. We don't have to give money. We don't have to make any bargains with God. All we have to do is accept a free gift of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us remember these things, that we would be encouraged by them and challenged by them in our spiritual life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.